to episode 67 of Pulp Today. This morning it's coffee because it's the morning and I'm daddy, daddy's a little tired. Mm. So, uh, I'm, I can be slow on catching up on, uh, on, on some books and uh, there's so many books that were written before I was born and I'm not done reading them. I don't really have to read them all. But uh, Andrew Vox... I've never read, and I recently took a shot at Flood, which I quite liked. It's his first novel. Uh, Vox is an interesting guy, and you should look him up. He, like Hammett, who was actually a private detective, uh, Vox, whose books are often about the monsters that prey on children, was a guy that spent a reasonable amount of his life, a fair amount of his life when he wasn't writing, protecting children, uh, defending them in court against their abusers. He worked overseas to feed starving children, literally, in Biafra. And uh, all of his experiences went into his book. And one thing I'll say about this is it, it's his first book, and it, it, has the, it has the feel of a first book. It has a feel of a man trying to get all of his thoughts, all of his opinions, all of his fantasies, all of his beliefs down on the page because maybe he won't do it again and maybe he won't get to do it again. As it turns out, he wrote a bunch of novels, like 30-some novels, and uh, there are three in the Burke series. Burke is the private detective who's the main character of this. According to Playboy, this was the revenge novel of the year in 1986. I, I had no idea that revenge novel of the year was a thing, but apparently Playboy magazine thinks it is. Uh, I'm going to read three short passages from it. First off, you know, it's written in 1986, it's, and it has a lot of very contemporary touches. I think the child abuse angle in 1986 was probably, sadly, more shocking than it is today. I think we've, uh, our news has been full of enough of this stuff now that it no longer, it has lost its capacity to a certain degree to be like, oh my god, I've never read anything. You, you have read something like this if you've been awake the last 20, 30 years. But in 1986, it was fairly fresh territory. That said, the book is written in a style that is absolutely consistent with the first-person, hard-boiled approach of everyone from Hammett to Chandler to my dad to Ross MacDonald, etc. So uh, this will sound very familiar to me, to you. Uh, one of the things about the main character of Burke, who is a private detective in New York, is there's a little bit of Doc Savage about him in that he uses a lot of gadgets and he uh, he's unlike Doc Savage, he's a little bit of a con artist. He, he but he he gives the appearance throughout the book of someone who has considered every possible angle and protected himself from every possible angle, including the fact that he doesn't have a receptionist when people come to see him as you'll see from this. The buzzer sounded, telling me either I or the dope-crazed hippies on the lower loft had a customer. I switched the toggle over to talk, and hit the play switch on the cassette recorder. A sweet female voice lilted out of the recorder and into the microphone connected to the downstairs speaker. Yes, please? A woman's voice came back from downstairs. I would like to see Mr. Burke, please. I hit the second switch on the recorder, and my faithful secretary asked, Do you have an appointment? No, but it's very important. I don't mind waiting. 
I thought for a second, contemplated the state of my finances, and selected another switch from the two remaining. Very well. Please come up, and Mr. Burke will see you shortly. Thank you, came the woman's voice. As soon as I hit the opener for the downstairs door, which also sends down the elevator, I went through the back door to the fire escape and climbed out past the connecting window to the second office. I kept going until I was near the end of the building, where I had a periscope mounted to give me a view of the entire hall from the elevator on down. It was a miserable arrangement, even with the floodlights in the corridor. When it was raining or dark outside, you couldn't see that much. But at least you could tell if it was more than one person outside the office door. It wasn't this time. So I went back inside. Pansy growled softly. I adjusted the fake Persian rug on the right-hand wall. The second office is against the left wall. So that it looked as though there was a connecting door. And I opened the outer door just as she was getting ready to knock again. I motioned her to come inside and sit on the low couch next to my desk. Activated a switch to open the phony intercom and said, Sally, hold my calls for a while, okay? A quick push of the second switch got me, certainly Mr. Burke. I turned to look at my new client. The low couch usually bothers people, but this lady couldn't have cared less. I guess she'd measured about five feet total, maybe an inch or so less. White blonde hair, high forehead, thin nose, wide set, dark eyes, and a kind of thick chunky build you would call buxom if you hadn't had a look at her from the waist down. I hadn't yet, so I mentally settled for old-fashioned buxom. She wore wide-legged gray wool slacks over medium-heeled black boots, a white turtleneck pullover covered by one of those un unstructured ladies' jackets, no hat, no jewelry that I could see, pale lipstick, too much eyeliner, and some rouge that didn't quite hide the tiny scar just under her right eye. It looked as though someone had engraved a tic-tac-toe crosshatch with a fine scalpel. She crossed her legs and folded her hands over her knee. One of the knuckles had a faint bluish tinge. Everything fit together on her nicely, but you can't always tell what a woman spends on her get-up the way you can with a man. No jewelry, for example, didn't mean she was broke. She sat as calmly as a toad waiting for flies, and the dog's presence didn't seem to unsettle her. It didn't look like a matrimonial to me, but I've made a career out of being wrong. So I just asked, how can I help you, in my neutral professional voice. Now that she wasn't coming over the speaker, her voice sounded like she forgot to th clear her throat. I want you to find somebody for me. Why? Not that I give a senator's morals for her reasons, but this kind of question usually gives you a good clue as to how much money the customer wants to spend. Is that important? She asked. It is to me. How do I know you don't want to find this person to do some damage to them, for example? If I did, you wouldn't take the job? I didn't need sarcasm this early in the morning. Even Pansy grinned appreciatively at her before rolling over and cracking another piece of her marrow bone. I didn't say that, but I have to know what I'm getting into. So you can fix the price? Okay, sure, I have to fix the price, but she obviously didn't understand the complexities of my business. If I put a flat fee on the job and I find the guy right away, I make some money. But if I don't, then I'm out a lot of time and I don't make out so well. And if I set a daily rate and happen to find the guy right away, I still have to keep him under surveillance for a few more days before I turn him over to the client so I make a decent buck. I do a lot of locates, especially for bondsmen. But I don't bring the people in myself. I have a gorilla I use for that work, and I can only use him when he's out of jail. He's such a genius that I once got him to turn himself in on a bail jumping rap for half the commission. So I said, I get paid for the work I do and the risks I take, just like anyone else. If I have to go looking down a sewer, I have to get paid for the possibility of rat bites, even if I don't get bit. You understand? Yes, I understand quite well. But I don't have time to bargain with you. I'm not a good bargainer. 
I will pay you a thousand dollars if you will spend one week trying to find him. Period. I pretended to think that one over. It was no contest. A grand a week is more than what some legitimate private eyes make. So that's a very boilerplate private eye meeting the client scene. But it has a slightly more modern flavor than the than the classics that it's uh, it's referencing. But it does tell you this, yes, this is the comfortable ballpark you're in, and we're going to th throw you some curveballs later, but it's, it's, it's this guy and this kind of scene and this kind of client. Uh, I wanted to read this next passage because I was recently in New York City, and I happened to stop by, by sheer coincidence, happened to stop by Bryant Park. It's beautiful. A lot of people of all ages, types, out having a nice day in the sunshine, eating their lunch, I got myself a coffee. My wife and I rode on. They have a little carousel there. My wife loves carousels. I take her on everyone I find. There was even a clean bathroom, clean public restroom in New York City with an attendant and a line outside. So in 1986, not so much. I got to Bryant Park around 9.30. This little plot of greenery located behind the public library is supposed to enhance the citizens' cultural enjoyment of their surroundings. Maybe it did once. Now it's an open-air market for heroin, cocaine, hashish, pills, knives, handguns, anything you might need to destroy yourself or someone else. There's a zoning law in effect, though. If you want to have sex with a juvenile runaway from Boston or Minneapolis or go buy a nine-year-old boy for the night, you have to go a few blocks further west. Not too much activity when I first got there. The real scores are at lunchtime. But the predators and the prey were already doing their dance, broads walking through with gold chains and swinging handbags, solid citizens hustling to get to wherever hustle they do for a living, amateur thugs who wouldn't know an easy score from a steady job lurking as subtly as vultures in a graveyard, small packs of kids moving through fast on their way to one of the porno movies in Times Square, some old lunatic feeding the pigeons so bloated from slopped around junk food that they couldn't fly, a bag lady looking for a place to rest her body for a few minutes before she nomads on. I looked around carefully. There were no real hunters on the set, like someone who got burned in a dope deal looking for the salesman. I sat down on a bench, lit up. Like always, I was early. Sometimes, if you come late for one of those meetings, you never leave. Uh, there are a lot of things to say about how New York has changed since the 80s, but reading that a week after strolling very pleasantly through Bryant Park was quite something. But I was in New York in the 80s, and I, I remember the Bryant Park that uh, Vox is describing quite well. And it was almost everywhere you looked. The last thing I want to read really jumped out at me. I said earlier that like all first novels, he's trying to get to everything. So he talks about dogs. He talks about pretty much every life experience he wants to get out. But he also talks about music. And he says something that I, I, I absolutely agree with and find found to be a very compelling observation. He's listening to blues music, I think while on a stakeout. And he says... And listening to the music was exactly like being back in my own life, like the blues are supposed to be. The blues don't make you think, they make you remember. If you've got no memories, you can't have the blues. I avoid physical pain like a vulture avoids live meat. But I call up the past sometimes and let it wash over me on purpose. Maybe it helps me survive. Maybe it makes me believe that survival isn't a waste of time. I don't know. That one line 
I avoid physical pain like a vulture avoids life meat, live meat, but I call up the past sometimes and let it wash over me on purpose. Engaging intentionally with past emotional pain. Do I ever associate that with listening to music? Um, I won't say that's music's main purpose, but oh boy, does it serve that purpose. I'm reminding you of... Uh, blood shed and lessons learned uh which forgive me is very 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 much private eye talk um so that's andrew vox that's burke there's three of these uh first one is highly entertaining and like i said the man himself was a, a fascinating fellow and that comes across in the books one last note before i go if you follow me on twitter tell me the sound of the cap fountain the water can you hear it? Can you not hear it? Is it annoying? Is it kind of peaceful and relaxing? I find it kind of peaceful and relaxing. That's it for this exciting episode of Pulp Today. I'll be back next week with uh, more sex and violence. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.